0: Today, we have our second guest ever on the show. Number two, one of my favorite people in the field of journalism. And I am not just saying that because they're on the podcast today. That is actually true. Katie Barnes, a feature writer in ESPN's digital... Katie Barnes, a feature writer at ESPN, one of the first people ever to talk to me at a UConn women's basketball game while I was just a terrified freshman. No, I was not a terrified freshman. I was a terrified senior in high school, while Katie, I assume, was a terrified rookie-ish kind of person at ESPN. Am I correct in that? correct.
1: Yes, I was a digital media associate, I think, which was basically like a glorified intern.
0: Nice. Wow. Mm -hmm. So since then, you have grown up to one of ESPN's biggest feature writers. And then here we are. I'm doing the same thing.
2: (laughs) Not much has changed.
0: You're doing a lot. Yeah. Okay. This is not a podcast to talk about me. This is a podcast to talk about you. You've written a lot of stuff about UConn, especially in the last, what, 18 months or something around then? I'm terrible with time. Time doesn't really exist anymore. (laughs) That's true. I think just the general wide scope of the question, actually to get a little bit into the details of what you written, you wrote AZ FUD is unbreakable about AZ's ACL tear, her recovery from that. And just a bit of an inside look at AZ FUD. You wrote about Paige Beckers, how she is the, uh, let me try and remember your wording. The, the next, this one super prospect, can she revive the greatest dynasty in the history of the sports? There we go. We're going to discuss that headline right there. And then also an excellent, excellent, excellent feature on Maya Moore's Fight for Justice for Jonathan Irons. That was pretty much a written version, an incredibly good written version. No, I don't want to compare it to the documentary. It was the documentary in words, basically, before the documentary came out. I like the written feature better, not to kiss up oh, here. Wow. But let's just start think- with reviving the greatest dynasty in sports okay that was a fun day on twitter when that one came out
1: oh it sure was and you know what i didn't care give me all the hate clicks <laughs> i loved it uconn fans were pissed i was into it uh i stand by that i did write the headline but like i actually think the headline has aged well to be honest um i think or at least it wasn't even like I mean, I don't remember if, I guess maybe that was the actual headline itself, but I think the question it has aged well. Like UConn is in its, when the UConn women are in their largest title drought since they won a title in 95, I stand by that if there was a tournament in 2020, they would not have gone to the final four. I oh, said no that. Chance. I didn't think they were no going to make it. Yeah. Right. Everyone who pays attention is like no chance, but people were like fighting with me about it. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I think they went, like, I think they lost three games in the regular season to, like, Oregon, Baylor, and South Carolina all by double digits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just like, you know, is UConn as a dynasty dead? No. But I think if you, I mean, I think if fans would ask themselves and be truthful with themselves, has the team been what they were in the late, like, from, like, 2009 through 2016? No, so that's all i'm saying
0: right but i think you could make an argument that those two teams immediately after brianna stewart graduated were better than the two teams in between maya moore and brianna stewart that didn't win national championships
1: sure but i don't know that that matters
0: okay so you're basically you're you were looking at it as the only thing that matters for yukon is winning national championships i mean which, I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just asking the question here.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah. Like, if I mean, because I think, you know, you could say like, yeah, those two teams after Stewart graduated were good. You could say they definitely underachieved. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. they went to the final four, but I think folks expected them to win. I think they expected themselves to win. They should have. And they did not. (laughs) Um, And so there was that. And of course, like those teams were also way better than I think. Oh, the team's from the quote unquote dark ages of oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 2005 2006 07 oh, those over rough yeah and uh yeah. you know i think like i mean yeah those two teams were way better but i at the end of the day like if it if you don't break home a championship like gino has been stuck on 12 11 11 11. there it is it's been stuck on 11 championships since 2016. And like, that's still a crazy number of championships and a five-year drought is something that people would, you know, clamor after. But like, all I'm saying is that I think folks got a little bit in their feelings about the headline.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you might've gotten a little, uh, brushback from Gino or Emma right after that one came out too, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Oh no, I think that was about easy.
0: I no, I thought you got for both of them. Maybe, but it might have just been one of those like side snarky comments that didn't actually make it anywhere. Probably. Yeah.
1: That's just Gino being Gino. He's not right like actually salty about it.
0: No, of course not. He also understands, like he says all the time how yeah, it's basically win national championships or bust, which I think you can probably debate whether that's fair or not. But I I I just can't imagine what the internet would have been like. During the dark ages, as you mentioned, I mean, I guess the internet did exist, but like in its current form, people would have been absolutely losing their minds.
1: Oh yeah. Been a complete and total meltdown.
0: Right. And then people would have had further meltdowns when UConn came back with just a white hot vengeance with Maya Moore and Tina Charles. I mean, those two mm-hmm. teams, you put them up there with some of the best in the history, none of the program of like women's college basketball. Those two oh, teams yeah. were unbelievable.
1: Mm-hmm. Fantastic teams.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I just had to get your opinion on that one first. You really set the internet ablaze. I remember vividly remember sitting on a bus going back to my dorm room, not my dorm. It was actually my house, my senior year at UConn when your article came out. And then shortly after the tweets just started flying.
1: So mad. People were so mad about it. And I was like, great, please click on it. And they did. (laughs) Uh, That story is my most read story
0: ever. Well, you also have the benefit of it just having Paige Beckers in the title too.
1: Oh, well, yeah. But this was before Paige Beckers was Paige Beckers, right? Like that it's story true. came out in February of her senior year. And it came out between the Oregon and the South Carolina games. And I remember because we had originally talked about it for signing week. And we pushed it for a couple of reasons. And then we just dropped it then. And it went like Nuclear. And I could not believe it. Like, I, the internet is like weird. So, like, when I say, it's like, my most read story, like, trust me when I tell you, it was a significant number of people. Like, if I, if I said the number, you'd go, oh, yeah, like, that's a lot of people. And I just, like, I remember just being completely and totally wowed because I don't think it's the best story I've ever done. I actually mm-hmm. wish I had more time on it, to be honest. Um, I would have loved to have done like a big takeout on page the way that I did on AZ. Um, Especially since apparently everybody really wanted it and it was just a preview (laughs) of things to come.
0: (laughs) Right. I was reading through those three stories again today, getting ready for this. And having most recently read the AZ story and the Maya story, I read the page one and I'm like, wait, I finished this one in like five minutes. I I didn't remember it being like, relative to what you do, you could basically write a book off your stories. There's so much very good stuff in there, but they are very, in every essence of the word, long form stories. Mm -hmm. And the page one, like you said, was just, it wasn't that, and my brain just wasn't ready for the difference having processed the two previous ones before. How did you write that? Did you actually go out to Minnesota and spend time with Paige and watch her kind of work and all that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, that was wild. So I was already going to Minnesota. Um, I went to college in Minnesota. Um, and so I was going back to my alma mater to speak at an alumni thing. And my mom and my grandmother were coming up to visit me. Um, and so I had like a trip planned. And well, my editor was like, well, since you're gonna be in Minnesota, <laughs> can you just report a quick pagebackers Becker's feature while you're out there? And originally it was going to be, it was actually supposed to be like kind of like a page and AZ like buddy cop feature. Um, but I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> We're going to do a page story and AZ will have a cameo appearance. And so I actually interviewed AZ at the SPNW summit that in a couple of weeks prior to that. And then went to Minnesota and like sandwiched in going to a practice of pages. And a couple of morning games did it like a 30 minute interview and ended up doing like a phone follow-up interview later and did some reporting around her. Uh, but that's like kind of how I did it. And this was in 20, this is October of 2019. So that's important context, um, <laughs> given our times, right. Uh, the real world. Exactly. And so it was meant to be just kind of something like pretty short, um, ahead of signing week. And that's why I was doing it in October. And then, like I said, ended up running in February, but and so, yeah, I think it ended up running like maybe around like 2,200 words, which isn't short, but yeah, but my Moore was 6,200 and AZ ran out about 5,000. So yeah, it's short compared to those.
0: Right. How do you even go about writing a story that long? I mean, I think my record is 7,000 and I'm not kidding you. When it's When I said it took me like two months to do that, how do you not only get through working on something that long, but then at the same time, how do you even formulate a story and then like make sure everything fits together? Do you have to like do multiple interviews for these things? And I mean, I guess the AZ, I mean, actually I should say, both of those are such uniquely different stories too. Whereas Maya Moore, you are telling uh, essentially like the documentary you you were covering the same thread as the documentary. So you not only have the Maya Moore stepping away from basketball, you have the Maya Moore family, you have the entire Jonathan Irons story. You have the entire Maya Moore, Jonathan irons connection, part of it. There's so much going on there. How do you manage to not only one figure everything out two fit everything in and then three, just make it even remotely coherent.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, those two stories are very different um, structurally and also, um, obviously, like narratively and thematically. But um, even from a reporting perspective, they were very, very different. So with AZ, I'll start there and then I'll go to Maya. Um, But with AZ, you know, that story was done mostly remotely. Um, I reported it in the fall of 2020. I did go to D.C. and spend a couple of days there. Um, but not very, I mean, by a couple of days, I think in general was like 36 hours. It wasn't particularly long, um, just to get some sort of scene and I ended up not using very much of it. (laughs) So that was just kind of the way that it was, but that a lot of that was, you know, phone calls and, you know, talking with AZ, talking with AZ's parents and getting more detail and more detail and more detail, making a couple of other calls to like to fill in like a couple other details in a scene to try and come up with something that felt, uh, They sort of like felt like you were there as a reader. Um, And that was really hard, uh, which was very, very different from a reporting perspective than what I did with Maya, which that story took me about 10 months. And I went to Missouri five times (laughs) and I was in those rooms. And so unlike with AZ and her family where I was talking to them all the time, I asked Maya four questions for that piece. I never did a sit down interview. I never interviewed Jonathan. I never interviewed Maya's godparents. Um, or anyone else that was actually in Maya's camp during that time. Even though I spent a lot of time with them while I was in Missouri, uh, and like in the courthouse itself, we never did interviews for it. So that piece was really uh, from a scene perspective, really anchored in what I was seeing being in that courtroom. And I couldn't have done it without having been in that space. And so, what I strive to do is sort of tell the story of this year in Maya's life through these hearings. And then, outside of that, I was able to do a bunch of reporting around Jonathan's case, around, um, you know, the just, you know, there's a whole section about you how to get out of prison if you are in prison in Missouri um and you know context on maya's career and maya's life and who maya is as a person as much as i could um report that without having had an extended conversation with her directly
0: that's crazy talking with maya four times for a story that large that in depth how did you go about reporting all of what was kind of going on with Jonathan's case, because I can't imagine that's simple to just come across. You can't just Google like, oh yeah, this guy that at the time was completely unknown in prison, just more or less just a number in the prison system. How do you find all of this, go through it, and then, like I said before, put it all together?
1: So a couple... So I found a couple of like old articles like there's some um, press uh, in St. Charles County when he was arrested and then as he moved through the criminal justice system. So I was able to access some of those for to see like what the conversation was at that time. Um, And then the evidentiary hearing, which was the big October hearing um, in the documentary, it was the one where afterwards, like Maya was um, talking on the steps of the courthouse. Uh, That was during the October hearing. And so when that happened, there was, it was like, you know, I had to really pay attention. It was very boring (laughs) because it was just, (laughs) you know, it's not like law and order. Like I had never really been in a courtroom for this kind of thing before. And you had to really, really pay attention because they were haggling over the specifics of two different exhibits and they would call them different things. And you had to like really pay attention to figure out what everybody was actually talking about. But in that hearing, Jonathan gave a narrative um, testimony. And so he talked about his own experiences and it gave me a decent amount to work with. And then I could have, and then I was able to get that transcript. So I had all of that. Um, Cause I was in contact with Jonathan's lawyers. So a lot of the stuff that they had, I was able to get. Um, and then when it came to going over the minutia of his case, um, I actually I made a classic reporting error. Like I just didn't it wasn't top of my mind cuz I knew I'd be able to get it. So I hadn't asked for the police report or any of that documentation ahead of time and then COVID hits and I need it cuz I'm writing but like everyone's at home and so his lawyer like was not going into the office and was like I can't get that for you also I'm out of town cuz I'm getting married and I was like oh my god. But the Innocence Project had Jonathan's case at one point and they still had it. So I was able to get some of that original stuff. And there's so much information in those kinds of documents that you can create scene and create narrative from it. Um, And then then like you're able just to sort of understand the minutia of that case. And so just by being around all of the relevant players I was able to get access to that information so that I knew what was at stake and what I was talking about and what all the key factors in the case um but that in and of itself was really hard it's not you know his case is not cut and dry um it's very like in the weeds um in terms of trying to communicate that to folks in a way that makes sense um where you're not bogged down in describe and like defining like what latent fingerprints means if that makes sense
0: what do you take away from this entire Maya Moore story from the time she stepped away from basketball until now, from your own perspective, that the general public might not necessarily be able to have, if that makes sense?
1: Hmm. I think now that Breakaway has come out, there's you, you kind of get a more of a sense of just how emotional it was. Um, At the time that I was following the story closely, it wasn't known publicly, and I did not know that Maya and Jonathan were in a romantic relationship, Um, but it was very clear from being in the, like being in the courtroom that the entirety of Maya's family and the folks that were around her, and of course, and Maya as well, were deeply emotionally invested in this fight. And they were exhausted like that's like the kind of thing that i don't know i don't know if it comes through in my piece as much but it's it was like really the energy in the room like so just to give you an idea of sort of like how this worked like my first trip out there was in august and it was for like a five minute hearing i thought it was like a big hearing it was not it was to schedule the big hearing and so then you know i was there Maya's whole family was there. And it was, it took like five minutes or like 20 people in this courtroom. Like it was not a large space. And so they scheduled the hearing, the evidentiary hearing for October. So then we get to the evidentiary hearing and the prosecutor's office tries to stall and is like, oh, that's not what we said we were going to do. We're not ready to do this. And like tries to drag it out more. And Jonathan's, um, legal team was like, nope, we're ready to go. And they have like five lawyers. And then there's all of this testimony. And again, the room is super, super crowded. And then everybody comes back in November (laughs) for (laughs) another five minute hearing to then kick the can down the road to January. And at that point, like folks were really frustrated because they're like, you heard all this evidence. This should be easy. Why is this taking so long? And so like that continued emotional um, experience, like it was really draining. It was really, really tough. Uh, I think just to bear witness to that, like, obviously, you know, nobody cry for me. It's not like it was like my investment, but yeah. that was something that I don't know if you can really get, you know, from, you know, reading what I wrote or watching Breakaway, away without like having truly like been in that space to feel that energy, Uh, It was pretty significant, and I know that I was certainly taken aback by it when I walked into that space. I don't think I really got it until I was there, and then I really, truly had a better understanding of exactly what this family was trying to do and why they were trying to do it.
0: Did you ever have to try and take a step back and try and put up a wall between Sort of their emotions and how you were covering it, because I know when Maya Moore posted the videos of Jonathan getting out and him walking out, my reaction to that was like, "Wow, that's awesome! That's really happy." But then watching Breakaway, like you said, the emotion comes through way more, and I'm getting emotional watching it. It's like very overwhelming at that moment where he's walking out of prison. As someone who was there firsthand throughout the the whole experience. Did you find yourself having to try and separate that feeling?
1: I didn't. Um, I think I write best when I'm emotionally centered. And so being able to experience that is actually really helpful for me as a writer and a reporter in terms of having a better understanding of what it is I'm trying to capture from an essence perspective. Um, You know, like one of the most powerful moments, and you see this in Breakaway, is after uh, Judge Green vacates Uh, Jonathan's convictions and they call him because he's not there and because he's not allowed to be right so they call him and you hear him singing through the phone and like you know I was maybe 10 feet away when that was happening and that was just such a powerful moment like to hear him singing and you could hear his voice echo through the hallway and it was just unbridled joy and celebration um And, you know, that raw emotion, I think, is important for me to experience as a reporter, because otherwise, like, how how am I supposed to convey that to readers who weren't able to be in that space that I was in?
2: How does that change now, like, in COVID times where you're trying to report on a story and you can't, you know, be somewhere and you can't really, like, see and feel that emotion? Like, how do you still, because obviously it still comes through on the page and, like, your AC story, even though that was mostly done virtually, so... you you know bridge that gap
1: it's awful I hate it so much (laughs) like yep I you you asked me and I never really answered this question about like how do you carry narrative over such long stories and the answer is seen like you need emotion and imagery to bring people in so they're not just reading like 5,000 words of paragraph quote paragraph quote paragraph quote like nobody wants to read that and I don't want to write that like that (laughs) sounds terrible and so you need like those scenes and the ability to make meaning of those scenes. And it's really hard to do that when you're not there because like, you know, 85% of the scenes in the AZFUD story are done from recreation. And so I have to depend on, I have to ask the right questions which sometimes takes a long time. Um, and, you know, subjects rightfully get frustrated. They're like, we have to talk again. I'm like, yeah and it's like I didn't ask you about the color of the seats I need to know the color of the seats and they're like no but so like not everybody remembers what the weather was or like if it even mattered what the weather was and so when I'm in a room I can sort of make meaning of what it is that I'm seeing for myself and for the readers and then augment that through an interview but (laughs) when you don't have that it's just like, I, my whole strategy changes. It's much more intense in terms of the type, the number of questions I have to ask and paying attention in interviews to make sure I get what I need. Um, cause otherwise the stories are just like really, really boring without it. I think how many times have you even
0: like physically face-to-face met AZ considering you did that entire story during the pandemic?
1: Three, no, four.
0: Okay. So, so it, the
1: page interview. Oh, that's right. Um, when I saw her, uh, when I went down for it. Um, and then when they were up here, they stopped by to say hi at one point, and then media availability the other day.
0: Okay. So is it a little weird that you've written such an in depth story about a person? Clearly, a very emotional and difficult time for a person having not that much actual in-person interaction
1: with them, if that makes sense? Yeah, kind of. Kind of, I think. Um, I mean, no more strange, I think, than, you know, dedicating almost a year of my life to a story and not actually talking to the person for an extended period (laughs) of time about it. I mean, like, I think for these stories, like, sometimes, you know, they just are what they are, and you just have to report, given the circumstances that you have, um, you know, for a story like the one with AZ where, because it was a cover story, there's a certain level of collaboration that takes place in those stories that may not in like a regular feature. Cause like you need them to open their house <laughs> in terms of like filming for it. You have to do like a TV interview. It's just, it's way more invasive than a typical feature would be. And so that connection that comes from that is a little bit different. Um, and I think, you know, given that she was so young, um, that's important too, you know, which I think stands in contrast to like some other features that I've done where, you know, even if I've written about that athlete multiple times, that connection isn't there in the same way um, because of just the circumstances in which that reporting occurred.
0: So since you've been in such close contact with AZ and then to a certain degree, Paige, I'm always very interested about what these players are like away from the cameras away. I mean, I guess to a certain degree, you're still media, but just when they're not on the court, when they're not, they don't have a camera in front of them. Just what are they like? What are they like as kids?
1: Uh, Well, Izzy's hilarious. She's a total goober, Um, absolute goofball, Uh, really, really thoughtful. I continue to be wowed by just how thoughtful and considerate she is. Like when she makes a decision, she's thought about it. Um, partly because she hates making decisions so she's really bad at that uh, but so she'll put it off forever so you know she's thought about it um but you know i i think i mean aZ is just like you know a teenager in many respects and just kind of behaves like one in the best way um i don't mean that in a pejorative way at all um i think Paige is surprisingly quiet um at least that's been my experience with her uh, but i have spent less time with her and that time is more dated than the time that I've spent with EZ. So I don't know if I have like a really accurate read on that. Um, but Paige is someone who I also, you know, continue to be kind of wowed by. I think when you are that age and like you're young and you're hyper visible, like there's a tendency or there's a possibility that you could like be believe your own hype as it were and neither of them really do. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Like they work really, really, really hard um, every day. And that's not unique for elite basketball players, but I do think for folks who are like, quote unquote, famous, like you may not expect them to be in the gym the way that they are. And, you know, they really are dedicated. I commend them for that. It's kind of wild.
0: Right. And I think that's something Megan literally wrote about this after we talked to Gino for the first time, how... Last year, Gino always said how Paige walked around that she knew she was good, but she didn't cross that line into being cocky. And he said a very similar thing about Paige. I think one of the toughest things about being a beat reporter is we hear about these players for up to like two years before they even arrive at UConn, especially after they've committed to UConn. And you can read all the local scouting reports. You can hear what Gino says. You can try and watch your own film. But then that first exhibition game or that first regular season game comes. And in the first five minutes, every single notion that you've kind of built up in your head about that one player is completely gone. It's completely wiped out. So you got a chance to talk to Gino one-on-one in his office, I'm pretty sure, from your story about Paige. And it was kind of haunting what Gino was saying about Paige and that and how accurate it's come out. So just from what you heard and now I've seen, how did that translate over in your head?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think Gino knew exactly what he was talking about.
0: (laughs) Um, Gino, good basketball coach. You
1: Gino, really good basketball mind. Who knew? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I think whenever you have like hyped prospects, like you never know like how it's actually going to go. But I think when you look at how Gino talked about Paige and what he said, and I think he talked about like how good with her hands she is, Um, he's like, you know talking about athleticism and he thinks of athleticism as being like, you know, really good with your hands. And like, he talked about like, you know, just her IQ and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of that like panned out as far as how Paige plays. Um, And I'll be interested to see, you know, what that means for how he's talked about easy um know, he's been pretty consistent in how he's talked about her he talks about her maturity her steadfastness her steadfastness um you know and not just like her maturity as a person um but it just in like the way that she plays Um, and it's always like on really minute details, right? Like her footwork, he's obsessed with talking about her footwork Mm -hmm. and like, that's really like boring and like unsexy as it were, like when it comes to like basketball stuff, but like I pay attention when he talks about those like really specific details about a player. Um, because I, at least in my experience reporting around the program, um, when he gets that specific, um, it usually means that they're pretty good. I feel like he's not speaking in generalities or platitudes. He's like, no, I like this specific thing about them. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll see how it goes.
0: Right. That's always something I try and convey. Like, yes, Gino is saying good things about this very highly touted freshman, but he'd be very quick to say that this freshman is the worst ex- in the country right now or this freshman couldn't even get on the floor at a D3 school or he loves throwing those things out but whenever he stops to really discuss what a freshman is doing and what makes them special it's one of those things where you're like we you you almost to a certain degree have to kind of pick out what he's saying because he can kind of go in both directions where he likes to be a little over the top in his praise at times and then obviously Exaggerated in his criticism, but it, it is those just little bits as you mentioned. And speaking of just AZ FUD as a shooter, was it you that wrote once, uh, when Page mm-hmm. not Page AZ committed with Steph Curry quotes? What's it like to have Steph Curry, who will probably end up being the greatest shooter of all time? At worst, he'll be number two to Ray Allen, who we just have to mention on this UConn podcast. <laughs> Either way to have a guy with his unbelievable resume talking about some kid in DC that hasn't even played a college game yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was wild. (laughs) Like I think when I was talking to Steph Curry and I was like, Oh my goodness, this man is speaking. One, this man is talking to me. Oh my goodness. Uh, Like too late. The fact that he took my call and that he took my call about AZ, I was like, okay, this is serious. And so to hear him, you know, evaluate her was, you know, it was really something, um, you know, like I've grown up playing basketball. I love basketball and, you know, I do not pretend like my basketball IQ approaches anything near the folks that I cover. Um, but you know, it's interesting, you know, it's like you watch with your eyes and you're like, yeah, she's, she's really good. Like undoubtedly very good. And then to hear Stephen Curry say it, it's like, oh, okay. Like I'm not blind. Like this is actually a thing that's happening. And I think especially like around AZ's uh, shot making ability, you know, like Chris Brinkley called her an elite shot maker. Um, you know, everyone that has worked with her talks about those things. They talk about mechanically what she's so good at, and I think you know that's been really interesting uh, to hear. Um, but yeah, but from Stephen Curry, I I was kind of bowled over. I'm not gonna lie, when he just kind of broke down how he ranked her shot, I was like, oh okay, we're not messing around anymore. This is a different like stratosphere of the comparison. And he said it. So I was like, you're going to call him a liar.
0: Right. It's... Here, don't yell at me this time. If you need to yell at someone, you can yell at Steph Curry and good luck with that
1: one. Yeah, that's the thing. I was like, y'all can call me a hype machine however you want to. But like, I didn't say that. <laughs> Stephen Curry did. So y'all can be mad at him.
0: Right, and you got to get those good quotes in there, regardless. That's that's, a, that's the number one purpose of those types of stories is get those great quotes in.
1: Of course. Oh well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Duh, yeah. If you
2: think of the fact that you know Steph Curry's even talking about like a college prospect on the woman's side just speaks so much to also like how much the woman's game has grown over the past few years. Cause you can think back even to like when Stewie came to UConn and like obviously was this, you know, top prize for and lived up to that. But I don't remember hearing any like, of this kind of hype around her arrival at UConn versus like what we've
1: seen for Paige and AZ. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And it's not because of a deficit of skill level, right? Like, it's not like, you know, Stewie was like worse. <laughs> like that's not really on the table, right? So. Uh, but i do think like social media has been a big part of that i think you know the fact that you know curry invited um az and then a group well az and cameron and cameron brink i think and then a group of um, young women after them um, to his you know select camp i think that really matters um you know instagram is huge like you know the highlights and everything like folks have been going gaga over the girls highlights too as they should like these young women are really, really good basketball players and they've got some insane highlights. And so to see, you know, folks, um, you know, over at slam and overtime and ball is life that kind of give them their due, I think, you know, just has done a tremendous amount in terms of elevating um, the interest and like the casual interest um, in women's basketball um, that I'm hoping is going to rise through the college ranks and carry over to the W as well. Um, But, you know, this generation is really like the first generation of like bona fide, like social media stars. Um, And what that's going to mean for the women's game moving forward, I think is going to be really interesting.
0: You make a good point because Sue Bird has said, I feel like a bunch recently, especially with all the NIL stuff that's come out, how they, she felt she had a bigger Following and more eyeballs on her when she was at UConn. And then when she went to the WNBA, it was a significant step down. So, do you think it's possible just for a couple players, or maybe you add in Caitlin Clark here with those two, that they're going to have such a massive following by the time they're juniors and seniors at UConn? Because it's not like the men's game. These players are locked in for almost their entire careers at UConn. Do you think individually they can carry that interest? Into the WNBA and help completely propel an entire league forward?
1: I think it's possible. You know, I think one of the things that I'm excited about when it comes to name image likeness is that it's going to really challenge the assumptions of the market for women's sports. Um, like, and I will never forget this. So I went to a Sun game. It was maybe like my first, my first couple of months in Connecticut, like after I moved. And I went to a Sun game. Uh, with a friend of mine uh, who used to work at UConn and we ended up going with Heather Bennett, formerly Heather Buck and Heather Buck played on these teams that I grew up Well, we're like roughly the same age. So I didn't grow up, but I was in college, I guess, watching these games and, you know, was, did not play very much, like really didn't play that often. And we could not walk like 10 feet in Mohegan without somebody stopping to say hello and ask for a picture. And this is years after she graduated, right? And I'm just like, what is this? And so when you think about like the impact of the Yukon women in the region of Connecticut, and now you add like the possibility of market capitalizing on that, like that could take them to a completely different stratosphere. And I think it's gonna affect every player on the bench, but for sure it'll affect um, a lot of players who get a lot of playing time. And so I think if you take that and look at what that could mean in these individual markets and then how that can translate um, to WNBA fandom, like I think it's such like uncharted territory. But I really do think that, you know, we're going to see a tremendous amount of movement because you're going to see people invested, not just in their college teams, which is really buoyed. you know, women's college basketball, but we're going to see them invested in players and then follow them. And so it sort of gives, you know, women's sports generally, but women's basketball specifically, the opportunity to capitalize on the personality of their players in a way that we've already seen uh, sort of that trend happen in like the NBA specifically and kind of trickle down into men's college basketball. Like folks care about the individuals, like we're seeing fandom of players and interest and in personality rise. And this gives women the opportunity to capitalize on that as well. Um, And so I'm excited about it. I think it's going to do wonders for the W. I think it's going to be rocky, perhaps, at first um, in college, but ultimately, I think it's a net positive for everybody.
0: Right. Generally, my unofficial measure of how popular something in women's basketball is, is if I turn on sports center on in the morning and one, if they're talking about it, but after I believe it was either the South Carolina or Tennessee game, it wasn't just talking about Paige Beckers on sports center. It was Paige Beckers leads off sports center is the main story on sports center. And they dedicate as much time as they would dedicate to LeBron James doing something on sports center. And then, you know, they have those graphics in the background throughout the show. And Paige Beckers is like the main person on the back there. And there was a time I was just watching SportsCenter in the background every morning. And Paige Beckers, even there were just some mundane, like she kicked the crap out of Xavier one game. And they were showing Paige Beckers highlights on ESPN. It's, I mean, not that I've been a dedicated SportsCenter center watcher for the last 15 years to have like a measurement, but they're not talking about any other women's athletes on a consistent basis like that on SportsCenter, which I think is kind of uncharted territory.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think ideally, you know, all women would get that attention. Yes. But what I do think is really interesting about Paige in particular is that I think sometimes, you know, when we talk about like media and media narratives, Um, You know, there's this idea that you know media have like spun a narrative about Page, and I actually don't think that's the case. I think the reason that Page gets so much coverage is because it has become very clear to everyone that there's so much grassroots interest. So, in a lot of ways, the media is reactive. Like like when we were talking about earlier about that small feature I did on Page, that is to this day my most read story. Um, I remember just being absolutely shocked by that. I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, And that's because people are really interested in her. They also might've hated the headline, but like, I also think that the interest in Paige was very much there and you could see it just in her growth in social media. Um, And so, yeah, some of that happened, I guess, because of media coverage, but a lot of that growth happened before she even stepped foot on, uh, you know, UConn's campus uh, in that regard. And so, and to me, I think that's really interesting and I'm hoping that as we see more and more interest um, gra- like from the grassroots level gravitate toward female athletes, then that's going to translate to more media coverage for more athletes. Um, what I really hope doesn't happen is that you know we have media coverage just concentrated on like one or two players um, at a time where I think we have just such a tremendous amount of talent in women's sports broadly, but certainly women's basketball specifically.
0: Okay, so let's get you into some controversial takes here. Oh, God. Relating to Paige Beckers, (laughs) in a certain degree, there is this narrative that Paige Beckers is only big because she plays at UConn, and she's only good because she plays at UConn. People think that? Oh, God, we got that. that. If there was one person on Twitter that said that who was it Megan like Ashley Jones should have gotten one of the national player of the year trophies but Paige only got it because uh she went to UConn more or less
2: yeah there was just yeah five thousand of those takes But I wrote like the article early on that was like Paige Becker should win like national player of the year when it was like kind of getting to the point where it was clear she was a candidate and the amount of like hate clicks I think I got on that and like <laughs> trolls on Twitter just being like what are you talking about was
1: Insane. Good for you. Just eat all the hate clicks. <laughs> I love it. Give me your rage. um I don't think it's controversial to say that Paige Beckers is a very, very good basketball player, and that would be true if she played at UConn or not.
0: I was hoping for a more dramatic answer, but yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> no,
1: I, <laughs> like, <laughs> she was like, you US- would. Say basketball's player of the year before she even stepped foot on campus. Like yeah. to try and argue that somehow she's overrated. I <laughs> like I I can't even take that seriously. Um, like we can talk all about like you know UConn bias and et cetera et cetera et cetera. Um, but to sort of use Paige Beckers as your example of that, that's a that's a rough go. Well, speaking of
0: that UConn bias, what are your thoughts on the U.S. roster?
1: my thoughts on the u.s roster i think man i don't know i (laughs) it's really tough i don't envy being in that position i think it's really hard when in general the longevity of basketball players is certainly extending and so there's like this generation of players from like age 26 to 32 who just don't have like the same level of Olympic experience. And they're sort of like that middle child generation. Like, I think it's wild that Skylar Diggins you know, is going to her first Olympics and she's 30. You know, like, I think that sort of speaks to the problem in just, and it's not even in the selection process, but just in the pool that we have right now. Um, and you can see it in terms of like the exodus of U.S. players abroad to play for teams and how not controversial that is. Like, I don't know if you guys, I'm a little older than you, so I don't know if you remember when Becky Hammond played for Russia and it was like the world was ending, like people freaked out. And now like it happens all the time. Like Courtney Vandersloot is not actually eligible to play for USA basketball. And that to me is wild. Um, But, you know, I think the feelings that folks have about NECA's omission specifically I think it's tough because it's just who do you take off the roster? Like, what do you do? You know, and I think there are arguments, I suppose, for some folks, and I think those arguments have become more clear now that Liz Cambage is no longer going to the Olympics. But that was not a factor when the team was selected. Um, but I think it's really hard when you're when you're looking at you know a Team USA roster to say, oh yeah, well either Sylvia Fowles or Tina Charles like shouldn't go because even though, because they've been, or they're older, I guess, even though they've, they're both having like some of their best seasons they've had in years. Like that's, that's a tough argument to make. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. And like, I'm certainly not gonna say that Brianna Stewart or Asia Wilson or Nafisa Collier shouldn't go. Like what? <laughs> like to me, that's, that's wild. And imagine if Elena Deladon was healthy like we'd be in a world of hurt from having those discussions. Um, And so I guess like that's those are like my very like lukewarm, messy, like nuanced muddled thoughts, I suppose. But, you know, maybe there's a discussion to be had about like, is three gold medals enough? Like, do you cap the number of teams that you get to be a part of? But, I don't know if I want to do that because we're Team USA and I like winning gold medals. So, you know, that might seem like a good idea in theory, but that's operating under the assumption that the United States will be able to field an A, B, and C team and win gold, silver, bronze in perpetuity. And there could come a time where that's not the case and we would regret having a decision like that.
2: Yeah, I think you saw like when the roster first came out so many things about like, oh, how the men do it. And they're like, you know, like LeBron doesn't play in the Olympics anymore. And now you look at the men's team that's like losing all these exhibition games. And you're like, so is this really the better strategy?
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like, does nobody remember when like the men went to Athens and like took the bronze and everybody had like an absolute freak out because we sent like not even our C team, like our D team. Mm-hmm. Like, is that what we want on the women's side? You know, I don't know. But like, again, do we need four time gold medalists? like there's a, that's a question to ask, you know, I don't know. Um, And there certainly isn't you know, a right or wrong answer to that. I think, I think there are valid arguments for reforming the system in a specific way, but I mean, I don't know that I've heard a good argument for who NECA should have replaced either.
0: And then, I mean, theoretically, when you go down that path, if you're going to limit a player to three medals, shouldn't you then just start limiting it to three Olympics? Because Why should the U.S. get punished for having good players where if the best player in Spain can play for five Olympics if she wants and that might help them win a gold medal? Like I just feel like if you start regulating it like that, then you just start digging yourself into a deeper and deeper hole. And then suddenly you've got this system that doesn't benefit anyone.
1: Oh, yeah. Somebody would be mad about it. And also I was operating under the gold medals assumption because I just assume when we go to the Olympics, we win the gold. (laughs) Right, right. Which you should. I'm just like to be clear.
2: <laughs> I was just gonna say on the subject of the Olympics, I'm just curious like your take on just general, like having an Olympics this year with the way the news cycle <laughs> has been this last week.
1: Um no comment. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like the whole thing just seems like a disaster. I am like so sad about it. I love the Olympics. It's one of my favorite things. Like it's my problematic fave. Like I understand that the Olympics can, there's an argument, the Olympics are terrible and that's fine. I just, I love watching swimming and track. and Like I love all gymnastics. Like I love all those things. Um, and of course I watch soccer and basketball too, but you know, the news isn't great and I'm really nervous. And you know, at this point I'm like, what are they going to do? Cancel it the day before it's supposed to happen? Like everyone's kind of already there it seems like there's just this commitment of we're doing it no matter what and that was sort of decided you know months ago um and so here we are i just hope that it ends up not being as bad as i fear that it could be yeah, okay.
2: yeah. it's We'll get there and everyone's
1: healthy and it's fine but yeah right and like there isn't like i don't know a delta variant outbreak in the olympic village like, like that sounds like worst case scenario and i would really like that to not happen
0: it's kind of the general feeling i've had about sports since they've returned at whatever time it was last year where it's like ah we probably shouldn't be doing this but it's not like i like, I have to pay attention. It's not like I can just be like, oh, ah, no, I'm, I'm going to unfollow until things return to normal. It's like, I can't just, it's not that easy.
1: Yeah. I can't really boycott my job. That too. <laughs> That's right. sort of how I feel. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're in general, I mean, this is certainly something that I've never lived through before, uh, nor, have most people alive on this planet experience and in terms of like what we're experiencing now. And, you know, I think folks are trying to make the best decisions they can, not always for reasons that I agree with, but, you know, I, and that's not to excuse anyone. Um, I just think that, you know, right now uh, we're in really uncharted territory and I, feel like most predictions that I have made in my private life around COVID have turned out to be incorrect. And so I just choose not to make them publicly in that regard, because I feel like in some ways we still don't really understand how the virus functions um, in many respects. And like, I continue to be surprised either by things that become super spreader events or things that don't at all. Um, So that's where I'm at on it,
0: I think. I'm just hoping that we can get to this actual college basketball season and have it be normal and not have it all be through zoom with the, the, the tarps on the stands and no one, I mean, when Paige hit that shot against South Carolina, where it bounced up a mile in the air and went in and there was just like more or less a dull roar that went across Gamble pavilion. It's like the roof should be collapsing right now. I should be getting concussed with the falling ceiling panels that have completely knocked it out. And instead it's just, it almost didn't feel like it was real.
1: Yeah. I think like that's one of the things that makes me really sad about last season in particular is that like, you know, (laughs) just like Paige played in front of like an empty arena. And, you know, I mean, that's true of all the UConn players, but I think there are like some specific moments where I was like, man, like, Uh, The fact that the UConn faithful didn't get to enjoy that team, you know, I think that in particular, someone who lives in the state kind of bummed me out and who's like been at Gamble like for some of these moments. It's just an incredible atmosphere if you love sports. And so I was really I was more optimistic, I think, three weeks ago that we would have a normal season. I don't know. I don't know. I just I, I at least hope that the fans get to be there. I would sacrifice, I I would like put up with Zoom if, you know, Gamble could at least be like 75% full Um, just because I miss, I miss that environment and like that part of my job of getting to be in those spaces and experience um, sports in the way that I love, you know? So we'll see.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, even as someone that was there, it wasn't the same watching it live. It's just... Without the fans, it's such a different atmosphere and experience and it almost feels like everything else is less important when there's not that background to it. Like I was talking with one of my friends last week and he was telling me he got season tickets to the men and wanted to go to a bunch of the women's games and he's like, yeah, I really have to see Paige Beckers live and I'm like, Oh my God, that's right. Like nobody could go watch Page Beckers last year. No one. It's not like they had a ticket lottery where a thousand people got in every game. Literally nobody could go see Page Beckers live last year. And if that's not a crime against humanity, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah. Well this year, Oh, it's going to be, I don't know. I think it's going to be wild. I'm excited to see this team play. Um, I think, I mean, they will be really young, but I don't know. It's going to be awesome. And just the, the depth. I don't know if we've seen a UConn team this deep in a really long time. That's um, going to be a dogfight fight for minutes. So we'll see how it goes.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, the, even if you think of what the worst case scenario for like half the players on this team are, they still have like eight really good players that are coming back from last year. So it's, it's like basically take out all the newcomers and then take out any progression from the returning players and just take the ones that helped you last year. And you still have a ridiculous core, but you know, AZ is going to contribute right away. You know, Dork is probably going to contribute right away. There's going to be someone that makes a big leap that you aren't expecting. Maybe Caroline or sailor has a big freshman year. Just so many, so few things need to go right for this team to be an absolute juggernaut
1: yeah i just yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to think i was like when was the last time that gino went more than eight deep on a team like on a bench 2016 maybe like truly more like I don't. Team. Yeah,
2: I feel like 2016 doesn't count because he did, but like it was because they were winning by 30 by halftime in every single game. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: well, I'm trying to think of that roster because it, I think every single player on that team, besides everything, every single scholarship player on that team, besides one, got drafted in the WNBA, which is first utterly preposterous. Yeah, it's but, wild. So the starting lineup would have been Mariah Jefferson, Brianna Stewart, Morgan Tuck katie lou samuelson and kia nurse and then you have gabby williams and nafisa mm-hmm. collier off the bench and i mean i guess you can throw Sania chong in that mix she wasn't really We're we're pushing it there natalie butler was she injured that year
1: no she did wait i can't remember
0: She didn't graduate
1: in in 2016, did
0: she? No, she played one more year and then transferred to George Mason and then, like, set like 15 NCAA records. And then the only player on that team that didn't get drafted in the WNBA that was on scholarship was Courtney Eckmark, who transferred to Arizona State and then set their three point record. So it's like, it's not like she wasn't a good player. She clearly. You know, I know, mean, but like,
1: but Gino never went like truly like nine or ten yeah, deep on that team. Yeah, okay. Like That's from a fair. rotational perspective, mm-hmm. like I don't like I'm having a hard time coming up with a team being like, oh yeah, he definitely went nine or ten deep there, because typically I find UConn teams, I I feel like they typically go seven or eight, which is probably pretty healthy. But with this team, I don't know what they're gonna do. <laughs>
0: yeah well it's also they just have like different players that like all right we can't hit a single three today send az and caroline in and you're not going to miss a three for the next 10 minutes of the game like oh we need to go up against a team like i don't know if Baylor's the best example anymore but a team with a ton of size okay you can theoretically have a lineup that has olivia nelson adota dorka and Aliyah edwards like good luck with that
1: <laughs> i'm hype i can't wait
0: it's going to be utterly preposterous. And then Kristen Williams, like, legitimately could be a national player of the year as a senior. If she continues to play the way she did in the NCAA tournament and yeah. even the Big East tournament, like, she could actually give Paige a run for her money for that award, which, yeah. again, is insane.
1: I, yes. I think it'll be interesting to, like, just to see. On one hand, like whether or not, I mean, I think from a skill perspective, like absolutely, there are multiple national, like, national player of the year contenders on that team. Um, But, you know, are they going to get the minutes and like the literal shots to make a case for themselves? Like, I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, You know, if they run the table and they beat everybody, then sure, yeah. Like, you know, national player of the year is often the best player on the best team, right? And if UConn has made the case for being the best team, then they'll be in that conversation meaning Paige and Kristen, but um, you know, outside of that, you know, but like as talented as UConn is like, they're going (laughs) to like run into some serious competition. Um, And I'm excited about that. Like, I think, you know, five, six years ago, you look at a roster that's as loaded as this one. And you think, Oh yeah, UConn's going to win walking away. I think 2016 is a really good example of that. Um, But South Carolina, man, (laughs) like, that's oh like no thank you I would not want to play them goodbye and so like that game it's always a dog fight it's gonna be a lot of fun um there are perennially now I think surprises um you know Arizona beating UConn notwithstanding not to like bring up you know a really tough time for the UConn faithful (laughs) but like I think folks were really shocked by that like you look at on paper that should not have happened and it did Um, And so I love that in women's basketball, there is so much more parody than there was even, you know, five, six years ago. Um, I think it's great for the game. And uh, I can't wait because as excited as I am uh, to watch this team play, there are are a few others that I'm also really excited about. And the storylines are going to be dope. And the tournament, oh my God, I'm already excited for it. We haven't even gotten to like first practice. Like, let's go.
0: (laughs) Right. I remember the 2017-18 year, which was Gabby Williams and Kia Nurse's senior year, that team was a juggernaut that didn't lose any games in the regular season, but it was incredibly boring. Like that team just went out and did the exact same thing every single night and there was never anything new to write about. This team, I don't think we're ever going to be watching a game and being like, oh man, I don't really know what to take away from that because like this player did this and this player did like, I think it's always going to be someone different or it's going to be in a different way. And I think that what, what, that's what makes this team so exciting. And I don't know South Carolina or Stanford's roster, but I think if this team is as good as they're supposed to be, and if they live up to their potential, they're not only going to be able to beat you. I think they're going to be able to beat you in a lot of different ways, which then might be what gives them the edge over, another really loaded roster like South Carolina, but I think with South Carolina specifically, they're a little, I don't want to say beholden because she's really good, but when you have a really good post player, I think that just restricts you a little bit. Whereas when you're Yukon, you have a lot of different places that you can go on offense.
1: Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be wild. Yeah. Oh like yeah. I said. <laughs> <I> cannot wait.
0: <laughs> well, for one of our last questions, can Paige Beckers revive a once great dynasty? Will she win? I don't know if even asking, will she win a national championship is appropriate? Because I think it would be one of the greatest upsets in the history of the world if she didn't. So does Paige Beckers win multiple championships at UConn?
1: I think so. You know, I think, you know, maybe not like three in a row, but I'd be surprised if this team doesn't get two. I don't know if it'll be this year. You know, like, I think when I think about like, you know, Husky teams, you know, like the 2018, for example, really, really good. Didn't win a national championship and they put it all together in 09. And so I don't know if we're looking at like, you know, 2019 where they're just going to make like a really great run and they have all this talent or if they need another year of experience before they get that done. Um, But I would be like I would be really surprised if somehow you know Paige doesn't win a championship by her junior season given the talent on the roster and also like her own like hunger and desire to win Um, and the same is true with AZ like that's the other thing you know just from what I know about those two I just I don't know to bet against them for multiple years I I couldn't do that personally. And I know that I have my own bias because of how much time I've spent around them. Um, but just given what I know about them, I think like they're going to do everything in their power to deliver another championship. Um, and I think they will be successful. I think my, I would put the over under at one and a half. So I would take the over on that. I would say too.
0: Okay. I think that's fair. The way, I look at it is this is not a prediction that she will be, but I think it is more than in the realm of possibility to say that Paige Beckers could very easily become the greatest basketball player of all time. Just in that's how talented she is, and with if you kind of look at the best comparison to her freshman year is Maya Moore, and if Maya Moore doesn't step away early in her career, she probably ends up being the greatest basketball player of all time. And you probably could make an argument that because she stepped away, she is. I don't know the greatest basketball player of all time, but she is literally just the greatest of all time. Insert whatever title you want after greatest. But if Paige is that good, and if AZ is as good as she's supposed to be, and then you add in the entire team around that, I kind of feel like at a certain point, it doesn't matter what the other teams have, because if you have two of the greatest players that have ever worn a UConn uniform and then you have Gino and CD and their entire staff. That's a really, really tough thing to bet against. But I mean... Looking
1: like a true homer. <laughs>
0: I, I don't think that's a homer statement. I think that's just from a lifetime of observing what happens a when Gino has the best players.
1: Being a homer.
0: <laughs> when was the last time Gino had the clear best players and team in the country and didn't win a national championship? Like there are a couple times. The 2001 like team... 20
2: (laughs) those two teams
0: 2001 and then so like it does happen but just more often than not when he has such a clear advantage they win it all
1: and i think that's just all part of
0: the yukon what makes yukon so great like
1: that they win when they're the best
0: yeah (laughs) i but but you look at
1: but who wins when they're not the best
0: okay i realize i'm kind of digging myself into a hole like, here like but you
1: know what I'm saying you're like oh well UConn has the best I, know, players, I know, so but... UConn will win and that's what makes UConn great which like I don't disagree with you but like I think I mean yeah like I said I'd be extremely surprised if this if like yeah. this collection of players does not achieve at a high level and for UConn that means ending the current title drought and I think we can say it's officially a title drought like oh yeah no you know, I, like, that's, that's definitely a, not unfair Like that's a real thing. And so, but I also think that with that, like comes pressure, you know, if they don't do it this year, that pressure ramps up, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, I always find it hard, I think to bet against UConn because they get upset so rarely, like prior to Arizona, I think like the last true upset. And I define that as somebody beating you when they shouldn't like Notre Dame beat them I wouldn't necessarily say it was, like, a colossal upset. Mississippi State, I guess, would count as, like, an upset upset. Um, But before that, I'm like, Big East Championship, Villanova, 03? (laughs) Like, they don't really – there's not many. You know, it's like they don't really lose to teams that shouldn't beat them. And, you know, I think when we talk about greatness and what that means, like, I think, you know, that's a real thing. And a big part of that is that UConn traditionally has had the best players. Um, But – I will also say that I think, and we'll see how this big East alignment shakes out. I do think it matters that they're not in the American anymore. Um, you know, when you're blowing teams out by 40 every game, like how do you prepare to be tested, um, you know, when you have your back against the wall. But I think that's going to be a like a perennial challenge for Connecticut. Um, and for this team too, this is a very, very good team, but outside of your non-conference schedule, like, you know, who is going to come into Gamble and have a shot at, like, beating you up? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that there are many teams in the Big East that are up to that task. You know, it's not like you're playing in the SEC or the ACC in that regard, or even in the Big Ten at this point. Right. Like, and I think that's going to be really hard when it comes to postseason preparation. Um, and obviously, like, I think Gino and CD will figure that out, but um, last five years, they have it. Yeah. So. Does having a tremendous amount of talent fix that? Possibly. Um, and Gina would say that himself, you know, he says like, well, when he has the best players, he wins and people laugh at him. He's like, well, duh. I'm like, of course, like, yeah, I win when I have the best players. <laughs> um, but I think that's why for me, like when we talk and you didn't ask me this question, but like, when we talk about like the greatest Yukon teams and greatest Yukon players. Like why, even though she didn't win four championships, Diana Taurasi is always in that conversation for me. Like oh, yeah. you look at those Oh three and Oh four teams. Right. Like, <laughs> And you're going to tell me that they were that on paper, they should have like that. They should have won the championship over Duke or Tennessee. Like, I think that's really tough, um, but mm-hmm. they had Diana, you know? Yeah. And I think that kind of stuff like really matters in that regard. when we talk about greatness. Um, and so we'll just see how it pans out. I don't know.
0: Right. I think the best, it's a flawed example, but the best example to my point is Sabrina Ionescu's senior year. That team should have been, one of those juggernauts and they lost a couple games early in the year. I think if Gino's coaching that team in that season, I don't think they lose any games anywhere close. That's sort of what I mean. Like, I don't think they have those dips and that's not a knock on Kelly Graves. I think Kelly Graves is a great coach, but I just think it's such. Gino can take that superior level of talent and push it to the next level in a way that a, a mate, a great coach, but not, The greatest coach can't
1: yeah I would say that I think your viewpoint on that is shaped by the Connecticut teams that play that have played in the American conference it's probably fair to a certain degree like I will never forget this must have been I mean I was still in middle school or high school And I went to the Notre, I went to the Notre Dame UConn game. And uh, that year I grew up like an hour from Notre Dame. So this was in Indiana and I went with my friends and I was so ready for UConn just to beat the crap out of Notre Dame. I was ready for it. And I, it was like Jacqueline Batiste, like maybe her senior year, but you know, if it was the 5 team, this is a bad example, but I'm not convinced that it was, I think Tarasi was still there. Um, And Notre Dame won that game by like 15 points. Like, and I remember like those games in the early two thousands between like UConn and Rutgers, man, those teams. And you got those games twice a year. Like UConn got beat up. Like there were teams that could, that they had to see multiple times. And there were real rivalries that just would be able to beat a UConn team in the regular season. And for as long as Connecticut has like did play in the American conference, they never lost a conference game. Like that never happened. And so like, I think when you compare those teams and like, you know, the coaching know-how, I suppose, of like a a Gino to like a Kelly Graves, like the conference like really matters. Like the Pac-12 is really good. And so when you're in that conference and if you have a tough night, like, UConn could shoot terribly and still run like you UCF out of the gym. Like that was just not <laughs> like, that was, it was just not competitive at all. And, you know, I think that's a big part of, you know, in some ways the mythology of Connecticut is like being unbeatable in that regard. But I think a lot of it had to do with the quality of competition. And it's no knock on the American conference. I, I don't think this is a secret. Um And so I wonder what, you know, the undefeated regular season Connecticut teams in the last five years uh, would look like, you know, had those teams been playing in the SEC, the ACC, the Pac-12, where there were teams that had pretty solid talent who could catch you if you were slipping um, and what that and what those records would look like. Um, obviously there's those non-conference tests and especially the 2017, 2018 teams. I was always really impressed with how they showed up against like really tough teams. But when you're in a conference, when you're going day in, day out, like if you're not executing at a high level and you could lose one, you know, that's a different kind of pressure, different kind of expectation of execution that simply, you know, the Connecticut teams have not faced in a really long time.
0: Yeah. And I think a good example of that might be that, junior year at Brianna Stewart where they lost out at Stanford and Mm -hmm. I mean no one came close to beating them again it was probably a good wake-up call for them but they did lose that game
1: yeah well and I mean like Diana senior year they lost four games like I remember it was like the sky was falling in stores like people were freaking (laughs) out um but you know like there are Connecticut teams that have gotten beat in the regular season like and whether it's non-conference or back when the conferences were more competitive. And, uh, you know, so I don't necessarily think that it's, you know, like, Gino is not like some unicorn who can just like, you know, his teams are just going to be better than everybody else simply because he's coaching. I do think that, you know, conference um, competition matters. And I think perhaps it has mattered more than the UConn faithful thought that it might um, and so we'll see moving forward what that means. Um, but when it comes to sustained greatness, like I think you know, greatness comes from being tested, and Yukon has to find ways to be tested in order, I think, to sort of recapture, you know, revive the greatest dynasty there ever was.
0: Very good points. Well, you briefly mentioned it earlier. We'll let you leave with who you think the greatest Yukon team, and who the greatest UConn player of all time was. And you have to pick one. You can't say that two teams are on the same level or two players are on the same oh. level.
1: Oh, no. I have very clear answers. Okay, good. Let's hear them. <laughs> no nuance required. I'm ready. <laughs> greatest team is 2002. No question. Okay. Uh, greatest player is Diana Trossi. Don't at me. I don't want to hear it. I understand that she only won three in a row, she didn't win four. But, like, listen. She only really had help in 2 So that's all I will say about that.
0: Okay, there you have it. All right, Katie, thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't read their stories on ESPN about Paige Beckers, AZ Fudd, and Maya Moore, go do that. We'll leave a link to them into the description. Also, thank you for all your great takes and for attempting to call me out on my takes, even though I stand by them as not being homerish. But I do appreciate... Some some pushback there, just so I can explain my very clear and very correct thoughts out a little more clearly.
1: It's okay. You're right for the UConn block. You get to be a Homer.
0: <laughs> I'm not a Homer. I, I will still stand by that and vehemently go against that. I I'll tell you who thinks I'm not a Homer after we finish recording, but I <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks for having me. finally and I'm (laughs) thrilled to be your second guest. This was a blast.